welcome to Youth Fusion's podcast. Today, our podcast is going to be part of the Youth Fusion Elder Series podcast. We'll start off by introducing Youth Fusion, which is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction, and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development, and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear, to inform, educate, connect and engage our fellow students, activists and enthusiasts. Through these activities and as part of the Abolition 2000 network, we are contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Through the Youth Fusion podcast discussions, we aim to exchange and enrich our knowledge and understandings, thus uniting us to achieve our common goals. The Youth Fusion podcasts are meant to engage our members with experts in the fields relevant to nuclear disarmament, where we strive to create critical discussions aimed at providing you, the listener, with an insight in the ongoing debates around nuclear disarmament and their related fields. The Youth Fusion Elders podcast series is the first series of interviews we will be conducting, aiming to highlight the importance of intergenerational dialogue and offer the listener a chance to learn from the experience of those who have been long-time and effective leaders in the peace and disarmament fields. The Youth Fusion Elders concept is inspired by a number of cultural traditions which affirm those community members who have considerable wisdom and experience. To us, the Elders Initiative is thus a celebration of those who we hold in high esteem and whose leadership, accomplishments, ideas and wisdom we advance online through our activities. Before we start our interview, we have an interesting fact for you. Our Youth Fusion podcast jingle comes from Roger Waters' lockdown recording of Pink Floyd's 1983 song, Two Sons in the Sunset, in which he refers to a potential scenario in which Roger Waters is driving towards the sun setting in America's west coast, and as he looks back into the rearview mirror, he sees a nuclear detonation take place behind him, thus creating two suns in the sunset. I'm Michaela Sorensen, an intern at PNND in their Gender, Peace and Security program, as well as a co-convener of Youth Fusion. I will be hosting this podcast today and interviewing our special guest and Youth Fusion elder, Ms. Ana Maria Seto from Mexico. Ms. Seto's background lies in quantum mechanics, stochastic electrodynamics and biological physics. Among many of her achievements, she has been the Technical Cooperation Leader and Deputy Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, Austria, which won the Nobel Prize in 2005. She has also been the Director of the Faculty of Sciences at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, a council member of the Pugwash Conferences when they received the Nobel Prize in 1995, a member of the World Future Council and Woman of the Year in 2003 as a member of the Third World Academy of Science, among other institutions. Alongside her outstanding achievements, Maceto has also written numerous academic articles and several books, has promoted scientific information programs in Latin America, as well as programs for the promotion and participation of women in science. Today, she is here to speak to us about the role of women and youth in the field of nuclear disarmament. We hope you enjoy listening and ask that you bear with the Zoom quality. Two suns in the sunset. 
start some of the questions. Looking back at your highly dynamic career, what inspired you to become a physicist? Well, Michaela, it's difficult to tell, but I think what is important in my case is that I had a fortunate and fruitful combination of curiosity and critical spirit. Uh, always, I have always been open to new ideas and to different ways of looking at things. I remember since I was a, a, a small child. And this was fostered, uh, this critical spirit, this curiosity was fostered to me uh, from home, from my parents, uh, I think were very important in, in this regard. And also to some extent in school, although well, you know in school you can have teachers who, who um, also try to support you uh, in, by responding to your questions, by rousing your curiosity, and then there are others who do the, the opposite. But I, 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 have, I have been very lucky. And uh, so for me, when I finally um, decided to, um, to study physics, uh, it was um, something very natural. It was a natural consequence of this experience. No? Uh, I could have gone into some other subject. I liked biology very much, but I didn't find the curriculum very interesting in those times. It has become much more interesting since then. Uh, I liked also geology, earth sciences, but there was no curriculum uh, in the earth sciences in, in those times in, at the National University. So physics was a my choice and I think it, it was a good choice because it has given me a sort of way of of living no I still live from physics I am a, a phys it's in my blood as we say in Spanish no? <laughs> no definitely and I think it's such a when I think of a, a physicist I, I can't imagine myself ever going into such a technical field so I think definitely that curiosity is definitely something that's really great to that you could have followed that and applied that in your your work life and it's an advice to all parents and all teachers Most definitely. <laughs> and I think... young people don't leave don't abandon your curiosity and your critical spirit Definitely. I think also looking back in, in my school days, it was it was very much um, all of the sort of more STEM uh, areas like the mathematics and the, the, the physics and um, chemistry. It was I was very uh, afraid of, of that field. Um, but I think also it was in my primary uh, years, I, I grew up and did all my schooling in, in Mozambique. And um, there it was very much, you know, the, the girls played with the Barbies and and did that and because there was sort of this remnants of the old colonial Portuguese system and I went to a Portuguese kindergarten and so I don't think that I you know from a very young age I was very much sort of you know put into yeah. what sort of field I, I should uh, from the toys that you play with and everything so I, I'm completely uh, I wasn't primed <laughs> for that uh, in that term but I definitely did have a curiosity and was interested in the general concepts and theories but when it came down to more of the mathematics, it was very challenging. Yes, but interestingly, Mozambique has in the meantime already had um, 
a lady minister for science and technology, Lydia Brito, no? yeah. who has later, after that, made a career in, uh, in UNESCO. I know Lydia quite well, and I think, uh, well, she is a, a model to be followed, and I'm, I'm happy that uh, Mozambique has gone so far as to have a lady. Minister of Science and Technology. <laughs> Definitely. And it's also very interesting with Mozambique because actually before the um, the colonization, there were actually the, the lots of the societal structures are actually quite uh, matriarchal. Um, uh -huh. But that well. is a whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's go on. <laughs> um, as a physicist, what was your role in working towards nuclear disarmament? Well, actually, as a student and even as a young professional, I must admit that I did not have a particular interest in disarmament and in nuclear disarmament, though I was generally socially and politically aware and quite active in student movements, etc. The pre-1968 atmosphere at my university, which is when I, when I made my undergraduate studies, was very fertile in this regard. And uh, together with my readings, with the friends I had, I, this awakened my interest in, in disarmament. I still remember, for instance, um, a lecture that was uh, given by uh, Linus Pauling precisely at our school. Uh, this was uh, before 1968, I think. And it, uh, it was very impressive. Uh, I think um, maybe that, that uh, somehow influenced me in, in this regard. Um, so this was the time also, 1967, 68, uh, of the signing of the Treaty, which is a landmark in the quite checkered, I would say, history of nuclear disarmament. No? So this personal background led me finally to my being invited to become a Pabuashite uh, several years later. Uh, and that was an invaluable experience for me. Definitely, and I, I think it's uh, it's very admirable how you've used your academic background to also uh, follow through in your activism, which leads us to the, the next question. Uh, how did you exactly go about bridging your, your academic background with your activism? Um, working hard, because you have to work on both sides and you have to be serious and professional about them. Yeah. You cannot take them uh, superficially. No? Mm -hmm. uh, you have to become a good professional, uh, a, a, a good a solid scientist. You need to have a, a good background. No, I did, after my undergraduate studies, I did, I did two master's degrees at Harvard and here at the, at the university and then a PhD. And I became, um, let's say, a serious researcher in my field, but without abandoning the other side. Mm -hmm. And you have to take them both seriously. So you have to work hard and with conviction. Most definitely. And I think it's also that much more powerful that you're allowed to sort of legitimize your activism mm -hmm. with your academic background. I think that is one of the, the most unique and, and impactful aspects of this all, because it's just so, so nice that you're able to do that, because a lot of activisms get a lot of critique um, if they don't have the, the academic background or the, the facts or the correct information. So I think it's very, very valuable that you're able to do that. Yes, you have to, you have to do both. Yes, 
-hmm. Otherwise, you lose credibility. Definitely. I think also in a, in a field such as nuclear disarmament, it is also that much more important because it is a very masculinized space. So for you to, to sort of belong to both spheres is just something that's really important, I think, in this field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, as a woman, what was it like working in such a male-dominated field? Well, you know, you have to learn to gently put your foot down. <laughs> no? It's not about confronting and fighting with men, no. But, no, put your foot down gently. And once you have to learn, learn to do this, it's normally, okay, I say normally. No? Uh, because then uh, uh, also men uh, uh, respect you. And women also, because this is, I mean, this male domination is something that has dominated not only uh, the, the male size, but also mm -hmm. the male size of society. And um, and then you can, if if there is, if you if people learn to respect you, then then you can speak out and and they listen, which is what is important that we listen to each other. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of um, this idea of, you know, like the masculine space and the, the feminine spaces, and then we have to sort of have the zero-sum game. And I think it's it's really nice how you you put it, that it's not about fighting, it's about negotiating and talking together and, and putting your foot down gently. <laughs> and sometimes, and that is something I learned uh, in, in Pavos, uh, it's about putting yourself in the shoes of the others, trying to understand their positions, their views, in order to be able to also um, influence them, no? Definitely, and, and would you have any uh, sort of um, advice about how, as a woman, how to put your foot down gently, or just some general tips and tricks? <laughs> well, um, you, you cannot simply keep quiet. No? Mm -hmm. um, you have your convictions, you know that there are some things that should change, and you ask yourself, you wonder, how can I um, uh, contribute to that change? What, what um, are my strengths? Uh, and which way would I like to, to go, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you maybe tacitly, not explicitly, you sort of design a, a strategy which goes with your own personality no? and uh, based of course on, on, on your strength on, on a solid background again that is very important uh, so that uh, the others also um, when you speak will listen mm -hmm. um, and international uh, experiences uh, help very much in this regard because then you get exposed to other ways of thinking, other cultures, other ways of approaching the, the problems, the conflicts, other ways of resolving them. And um, you learn a lot from that. It's, it's a learning experience, but uh, um, as you learn, you can also, you, you also make progress. You see that you... you um, you, you start maybe achieving some uh, small steps, but they give you more confidence and uh, 
it's it's a confidence building, self-confidence building process at the same time. A learning and self-confidence building process. Definitely. And I think that's also such a such a good thing to point out. Um, that also you, uh, you anyone, whether you're a man or a woman, you do need this self-confidence to yeah. to negotiate and, and sort of have it as a skill to, yes. to communicate well as well with others. And then it is it becomes clear that negotiating is not about making concessions. Uh -huh. I don't make concessions, no. It's about understanding the others. You have to establish a dialogue and about trying to get your convictions through. Of course, um, in a negotiation, the other side wants to do the same. So that's where you have to come to agreements, but that doesn't mean concessions. I, there are things where I don't make concessions, no? On, on the ethical side, on the moral side, for instance, no, no concessions. I think it's also important to to stand for what you believe in on, on certain yeah. things and, and don't compromise too much as well. So I think that that's definitely a, a good advice to, to give people. <laughs> you, you, you have used the right words. It's, yes, not making compromises. Super, thank you very much for that. The next question is also in this um, more gender um, line, but also going to mm -hmm. sort of tap on a little bit more about your certain uh, environment. So furthermore, what was it like working in the STEM field in a Latin American country where ideals of machismo have a heavy influence on society? Yes, yes, certainly they do. Um, even in, in uh, let's say, in the academic environment, maybe it's more sort of hidden, but it exists. No? So I would say, my, in my experience, as long as you do not represent a threat to them, to the machos, I mean, if you do not compete for power or for prestige, if they don't feel displaced, then as, as long as it's like that, it's okay. No? Then they leave you free and you can, you can work, you can collaborate, and they, et cetera. But we were trying not to step on powerful toes. Mm -hmm. Um, because retaliation can be swift, even if hidden, if covert. Uh, although I would say um, sometimes it's business retaliation can be quite plain and harsh. Uh, just look at the violent reactions to the feminist movements today. Mm -hmm. I don't know in, in Europe, but here in, in our part of the world, and specifically in Mexico in particular, uh, there is an increasing number of feminicides. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I've spoken about this with friends I know who, who have had um, positions of responsibility, even in the government, in, in uh, offices created to support uh, women. And it is also their view that this is a reaction, a sort of retaliation from the machist side of men. I, I, I don't want to generalize, not all men are like that, no? Mm -hmm. But um, this is coming to the surface. So for me, this means one has to work more with men also, try to understand what is happening there and not just continue with this feminist uh, movement that just look at the, at the women's side. It is, uh, it is a social problem uh, that concerns us all, not only uh, half of the population. 
Yes, and I am happy to see that among young people there is more, I see more community, no? Mm -hmm. uh, between um, young people of different genders. I don't want to say just men and women mm -hmm. because yeah. gender diversity. And uh, this may help. So I hope uh, this is just a generational problem and, and that the younger generations won't uh, won't inherit this uh, very um, violent atmosphere that surrounds the uh, feminist movement today. Definitely, and I think that has been a, a marked a point within some of the critiques of uh, some parts of the feminist movement that do sort of, you know, focus a bit too much on women and sort of, you know, put the, the men uh, try to, it's like the zero-sum game again, right? You know, I think uh, also, you know, reflecting on what else you said uh, earlier in the interview, it's very important to to have negotiations and 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 put your foot down gently and not give up, not compromise too much, but but definitely uh, try to to tackle the problem in a way that uh, that all parties um, involved in the problem can talk together and, and negotiate. So that we can make progress in, in parallel, uh, no? Uh, yes. Um, in fact, um, I had a nice experience in the late 80s when we founded the Third World Organization for Women in Science. Uh, I was part of a small group that uh, drafted the first um, um, the first uh, statutes for, for the um, for this uh, organization, and uh, it was a, a lot of discussion among us. It was a group of five colleagues, one from each uh, continent, from from each region of the world, and. Um, there were some who wanted to call this organization the Third World Organization of Women in Science. And I said, no, for women, because we have to also invite men to be part of it. And it's, it's not about now us making a separate group, because this is what we have been suffering from. This is what we have been criticizing mm -hmm. and fighting against. So now we have to work together and uh, make each other understood. It's not easy and it won't change uh, overnight. I think we need to look at what is happening and try to see whether there are other strategies that could help us move forward together jointly. Definitely. I think I, there are a lot of movements that are catching on to this idea and um, and embracing that uh, approach more and more, uh, at least from what, what I have seen. So I hope to see more of that in the, the future, and I'm sure you do too. Uh, so the next question is, in your work, you have a point of promoting scientific information programs in Latin America, as well as the promotion of women in science. Why is this so important to you? Well, the, these are two questions. I will try to respond to the first one first about the scientific information programs. Yes, I've been, and I'm still very, very much involved in that, also in promoting open access to, to science and to scientific information. And uh, well, I started over 25 years ago uh, making efforts in this direction, but I won't make uh, uh, history, no, just uh, look at today. today a handful, a handful of commercial enterprises, very big commercial enterprises, 
based in the north, in Europe, basically, and in the States, we have the control over the international scientific publishing arena. And this represents a highly profitable business for them. I mean, these companies, they make over 30% net profit a year. That's mm -hmm. this, no? And you have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to have your paper, which is, you worked on it. It was peer-reviewed, you have it accepted, and you still have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get it published in one of the journals that are managed and controlled and owned by this big commercial enterprise. So further to this representing a highly profitable business for them and a financial, a big financial burden for our academic institutions, and not only in the developing countries, all over the world, Mm -hmm. It has the effect of overshadowing valuable contributions to science from our countries, from developing countries, because our journals are not represented in, in those big commercial information services. So uh, this science that originates in other regions of the world, uh, from other cultures, is almost considered like grey literature, literature that is not valuable that you can dismiss. Yet we all contribute one way or another to science and to scientific knowledge. We make our efforts, we have our own way of perhaps of doing science, although they say science is international. Yes, we contribute also to international science, but from our perspective, from our points of view, etc. So if we do not give visibility to these contributions, if we don't value them and promote them, nobody will do it for us. Uh -huh. So this is why I took the initiative to create this information system, the Latinx, in 1995. And that's already 25 years ago, and it has had an impact, I'm very happy to say. There are now other information systems you can have. You can look at many journals online produced in, in Latin America and in other parts of the world. But um, I pioneered this with uh, with Latindex, and uh, and it's it's still an ongoing effort. Um, we that's why we also promote open access, uh, free and open open access, non commercial, no plan S, no no profitable business. No, it's not a business. Journal publishing for us is not a business. It's part of the knowledge production and dissemination process. So. And now to the second question, uh, because uh, I would say the same applies to my efforts in promoting the participation of women in science. For me, cultural diversity, linguistic diversity, knowledge diversity, uh, knowledge source diversity, even gender diversity in all areas of human activity are as important as biological diversity. So I am for, for diversity. In general, no. I think that all these aspects of diversity are essential for human survival, for the survival of of humankind as a whole. Definitely, and I think it's such a, a powerful point you make because I just know in in Mozambique we have a lot of prominent scholars who who also unpublish worldwide. They're in Mozambican journals, and they have a lot of valuable information. And I think it's just such a shame that you know, the, the North sort of has this monopoly on, on academic literature because they're really missing out on a lot of information. And they also send out Northern, from the global North, uh, you know, academics to go into these countries in the global South. And they will never have the same intrinsic understandings of a culture or an environment uh, as, as locals do. 
So it's it's also a thing of not using that really great resource that is right there for everyone to use. So I 100% agree with you that it's so, so important to have this um, diversity as well and representation. <laughs> yes, and visibility, because it's yes. also these big companies are also the ones that are behind, behind this invention of the impact factors and the different measures that, which uh, dictate what is good science, what is not yeah. good science. And no, 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 you cannot simply take that for granted. Yeah. Good science can be done any, everywhere. Yeah, and I, I think it is. <laughs> it is done <laughs> everywhere. So I think we need to acknowledge that um, it's about time and yes. we should stop uh, quoting things in, um, in excuses, um, I think. So I'm very happy that you answered that question so interestingly. Uh, what added value do you think women bring to the STEM field, uh, such as um, physics or, or any field? Well, it's, it's difficult to tell, and it's a very controversial point. Of course, in some areas of science, it's perhaps more visible, the, the difference between the contributions of women versus the contributions of men, perhaps in some areas of biology or um, human health, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, yes, in general, from my experience, I would say we tend to look at things from different angles. No? Mm -hmm. It is perhaps our multitasking ability that we do have, no? uh, that contrasts with a more focused approach of our male colleagues. We tend to not to overlook, for instance, the human side of things. No? We also have, so we have sort of we have several channels, not mm -hmm. men used to have one, one channel and then they concentrate on that. And the human side of things is always at, at work, it's always important, especially if you have to collaborate, which is usually the case in science. So um, doing science is not just about solving an equation or in, in or discovering something, no. It's, it's, it's also, at the same time, a social, a collective endeavor. Uh, human relations are important, different ways of looking at things are important, and you have to have all genders represented in, in science also, because it is, uh, science is a product of, of a human activity. It should not be just uh, male. <laughs> Sure. Definitely, definitely. And I also just think it's an important because, you know, if you have half the population that isn't involved, then you you lose half the population of, uh, of valuable input. <laughs> so, yes, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yes. Also, well, for, um, uh, we have the right yeah. to be top scientists. Also. Definitely. No, nothing should stop us from it. Exactly, whether it's uh, indirectly or directly. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes. Um, and right now we're going to go to the, the second um, sort of thematic uh, section of the interview, uh, which is on more on youth involvement. So in, in your view, what role does the youth play in creating a more peaceful and uh, sustainable world? Uh, and it can also be uh, in relation to the nuclear disarmament field or, or the academic mm -hmm. field. Yes. Well, I would say the, the, the youth play a central role and a usually important role. When you are young, you take a fresh look at things. Ideally, you are free of biases and prejudices. You feel free to be critical. 
sometimes people, well, there is a say, no, they never trust anybody. Some say under 30, some say over 30, because um, many, I, I would not say that from myself, but I, I can observe that many uh, of my friends and former colleagues or companions at school, as they grew older, they started to somehow leave aside their, their principles, their convictions, and mm. um, perhaps were being worried that they have more of their, their future, their status, uh, etc. And no, when you are young, you have your ideals, which you should not lose. No? Mm -hmm. uh, you have the energy to act, which is something that we use with age, and you have the impulse to change the status quo. No? Mm -hmm. So, our role is, is to support you and to perhaps to give you some advice if you ask for it. If you don't ask for it, we better keep quiet. No? But the younger generation is the one that is going to really affect the change. And we are all convinced that the change is needed. Mm -hmm. You can even read the latest statements from the UN Secretary General, for instance, or even from, from the Pope. No? There's an agreement, I would say, I don't know if you can speak of consensus, but some deep changes are needed. So if the younger generation does not take this serious and moves in the direction of working for those changes, they will not take place. Mm -hmm. So you have a big responsibility, but I don't want to... It's, it's not that I'm putting pressure on the young people or that I want to, how do you say, make them afraid of, of the future ahead, but there is a, a huge opportunity to contribute to the changes needed. Definitely, and I think that's, you know, it's why we're all doing this at Youth Fusion. And it helps us a lot to get um, some reassurance from you that, you know, we're, we're on the right track and that you're also supporting us in our uh, in our efforts as well so we also really appreciate that and we also need some of the that push and, and reassurance sometimes in our work because it, it can get a little bit uh, difficult um, to do all the the change making <laughs> yes also young people can be more innovative no you invent things that perhaps we had not thought of because they were not realistic or they were not possible at our in our times but uh, times change, so uh, you can be creative and inventive and uh, find alternative ways of doing things. The new tools also that are available. Definitely. And would you also have any uh, comments or advice on, on the, the youth of the, the Global South? Because I think also with, with youth uh, empowerment, I think that's also another area like academia where their voices aren't as amplified as well. Well, um, let me... First, tell you that I don't use the term global south mm -hmm. because we are not globalized in the south. I don't speak of global north either. Yes, there are northern countries that, are, that dominate. Yes, we are still living in the post colonial era. No, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the south is very, is very diverse and very rich. Of course, there are features that we share that are in common between countries in the, in the African continent, in the Latin American continent, in the Asian continent. Much of it is precisely still um, a result and outcome of the 
former colonial times, although we were differently colonized, that also has um, given rise to some geographical and historical differences. But it is true that um, in all countries of, of this, what is called the South, we we need also to, to participate in these efforts, network with, uh, for instance, networking people from countries in Latin America with, uh, with you would be very good. And I, I feel that um, your initiative, Youth Fusion, is excellent. And it would be fantastic if we could find some, some partners and maybe we can help you in this regard, who would be willing and interesting to join in order to strike a, a geographical and also cultural balance. For instance, yeah, something that in, in my case has been important and, and I think it, it reflected in my work both in Pugwash and also the IAEA and in other international organizations with which I have been involved, is that I come from a pacifist country. I come from a former colonized country, you know? And so my views are always uh, are uh, somehow informed by this background. In Pagwash, it was very clear because most of the most prominent Pagwashites were, uh, well, citizens of nuclear powers. And there was a, still a Cold War mentality even in the late 80s, early 90s, you could feel it. And so participation from uh, us coming from uh, this different environment that has not made the world that is non-nuclear, that is uh, opening against nuclear weapons, it has made progress in that direction and has given the good example is good. And in, in this regard, I think it would be Excellent if uh, Youth Fusion could bring together also uh, young people with these other mentalities to, to complement and to strengthen what, what you are doing because the initiative is, I think, is very good. I think that is our overall aim as well. We would like to get as many regions uh, involved in, as possible. That's always uh, on the agenda with whatever we do. Um, so I yeah. think that's definitely something that we we will continue to work on and, and try and make more diverse um, networks and, and connections around the globe to fight for this issue, for sure. What advice would you give for to young people um, in terms of entering the, the nuclear disarmament field, whether it's uh, in advocacy or entering the academic side of it? Well, or going into a, a, a scientific career no? in, the, in the STEM field, I would say, go ahead, girls. <laughs> um, you won't regret it. You won't regret it, especially if you if you pursue your studies. I, I know that um, I'm in, in my when I was your age, I also wanted to do the work of social benefit, but this did not mean abandoning my my academic career, and uh, and that is I think is important important as as we have said before, no. And if you do that, you won't regret it. Science is a never-ending adventure. No? It's endless. It's an, it's an eye-opener. No? It helps you understand many things or the workings of nature, including human nature. And, and it's also a door-opener. 
as a scientist, you you become you are equipped with uh, with many things in life, whether in academia or in industry or in civil society or in government. You learn certain tools, uh, certain way of reasoning, and uh, you have a better idea of how nature is has evolved, how it works. No, uh, it makes you cultivate your critical spirit, which um, nurture it, which is important. And moreover, you always have the opportunity to learn new things. You learn to to learn. Uh, to create, um, to discover, to invent. It gives you a, a degree of freedom, I would say, an extra degree of freedom, science. And also, you meet interesting people. Most definitely. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> well, that brings us to the, the end of our round of questions. Um, so thank you so much for answering all of the questions and taking the time out to, to help us today and, and also play a role in diversifying the, uh, the voices globally um, from different regions. <laughs> I think what we said here today also was really some fantastic uh, material and also definitely useful with the, the gender perspective as well. Fine. Thank you very much, Mikana. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good weekend. Bye. Thank you, Maseto, for taking the time out to have this interview with us, as well as the audience for listening. Stay tuned for more exciting podcasts in our Youth Fusion Elder Series, where we'll be hearing from many other highly esteemed elders who have done inspirational work in the area of nuclear disarmament, sustainability, empowering the youth, and much, much more. We also have a Youth Fusion blog where this interview will be summarized, so check out the link in our bio if you prefer reading over listening. That's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and are hopefully inspired by our wonderful guest. Stay safe and catch you later.